Greetings and welcome to episode 28 of Beyond Huaxia. I'm your host, Justin Jacobs. Last time, we talked about the Opium War. We talked about uh, the, the knowledge that existed within the Qing Dynasty in the 18th century. Okay, in the middle of the 18th century, when the British were just beginning to consolidate an empire um, on the South Asian subcontinent, um, and yet the Qing Dynasty didn't really understand uh, the nature of this growing threat. And we talked about the differences in sort of multipolar worlds versus unipolar worlds and how that colored and influenced the sort of policies and conceptions that the different parties had of each other, uh, their perception or lack of a perception of a threat. Okay, um, and at that time we noted that in intelligence, Chinese intelligence of what was going on, um, even just in India, okay, just in South Asia, not that far away, um, much less Europe itself, was extremely fragmented and largely flawed. And what little tidbits they did have weren't even really shared across different parts of the empire because they were operating on what we on what we referred to as a frontier policy, not the sort of integrated multilateral foreign policy that the Europeans were adopting uh, because they saw themselves as in a fiercely competitive multipolar world, just beginning their expansions, matter of life and death, existential threats around every single corner to our empire, to our civilization, um, and where the Qing dynasty um, felt that it was sort of in consolidation mode, retraction mode. We have now accomplished the greatest conquest uh, of our age. There are no major threats to our empire. Okay, um, And then we eventually saw how this culminated in the West, um, picking a fight with the Qing dynasty through a drug, opium, um, and then, you know, what was, you have to uh, acknowledge is a principled response uh, to this forced addiction that was imposed upon the people of southern China uh, results in England declaring war, getting a pretext to try to force its newfound military might in the, at the dawn of the Industrial Revolution, post-Great Divergence, uh, to impose their will upon the Qing Dynasty for the first time. And yet even then... After the Opium War, the first so-called unequal treaty, we noted how it wasn't really seen as an unequal treaty at the time. This is business as usual for Chinese dynasties. This is how you deal with pesky little profit-motivated barbarians, even if the British uh, told us that we can no longer call them barbarians anymore. Uh, they're still widely regarded as that. Okay, um, No sense of an existential threat. Now we're going to shift our attention in this episode to the first first-hand knowledge that people in China had about the West, okay? Not just India, and not sort of knowledge filtered through several uh, intermediaries of Europe, uh, but actual people in the flesh and blood, okay, who have high connections in the government, not just, you know, someone that Jesuit missionaries brought back to Europe. There actually were some of those. If you're just looking for, you know, Someone from who grew up in East Asia, who then is transported to somewhere in Europe um, and grows up there and sort of becomes European in their culture and dress and language and whatnot. You actually have several fascinating examples of that. You have uh, Chinese in Italy, you have them in England, um, and many of them predate the situation that we're talking about today. But those guys weren't, you know, they weren't uh, politically loyal to whatever dynasty was in charge on the East Asian continental mainland, all right? They left, and they largely assimilated, you might say, um, into European society, okay? What we're talking about today is the first time that the Qing Dynasty, or anyone on continental East Asia, starts to say, you know what? We need to understand what the Western world is like at its source, and these are gonna be official fact-finding missions, and the results of, the, of uh, these missions, we're going to write up the intelligence that they provide. And we're going to try and think, you know, what do we do with this intelligence? Is the West truly a threat? Okay, but we want to see this with our own eyes now. Okay, we want to see it with our own eyes. Now, before I go any further, 
I also like to note, especially when we get into modern Chinese history, previous episodes when I talk about pre-modern Chinese history, I'm synthesizing so many materials, so many books and whatnot, that even I've forgotten where some of this stuff came from. So I can't just recommend, you know, one book for a topic like Northern Hybrid States or the Great Southern Migration. Uh, but when I were in modern Chinese history, much of the research and the major themes and events that I'm talking about, there actually is excellent scholarship that is embodied in one single book that you can read if you're interested in this topic. We saw this with earlier topics as well. Uh, today, uh, Qing Envoys to the West. If you find this material to be particularly interesting and want to read more, I urge you to pick up the book upon which I have based this lecture uh, by a wonderful scholar, Jenny Huangfu Dei, and her book title, it just came out in early 2019, Qing Travelers to the Far West, Diplomacy and the Information Order in Late Imperial China. Okay, now let's get to our case studies um, and try to understand what the first unfiltered, unmediated Chinese impressions of the West were after the acceptance of the Euro European diplomatic model, okay, ostensible equality, but prior to the sense of an existential crisis, okay, prior to the sense of an existential crisis. Now, the two guys that names I want you to become familiar with today are um, the first two men who led uh, missions abroad to Europe. One of them is known as Bin Chun. Uh, he led a mission in 1866. All right, situate yourself here. The creation of the Zongli Yamen right after the Second Opium War, 1861. Five years later, your first official Qing, Qing Dynasty envoy. Um, and then another man followed him about three years later, Zhigang, Z-H-I-G-A-N-G. Bin Chun and Zhigang. These are strange names, aren't they? Remember, if you uh, are familiar with how most Chinese names work in the agricultural heartland, it's a, usually a one-syllable or one-character surname followed by either a one- or two-syllable, two-character given name. That accounts for the vast majority of Chinese names. So when you have a single name like Binchun, it's just one word, Zhigang, just one word, you think, where do these come from? They often come from the Manchu and Mongol bannermen. And sometimes even the Han bannermen who joined the Qing Dynasty con uh, conquest early on in the northeast, in the Liaodong area of what is uh, often referred to in English as Manchuria, northeast of Beijing. Okay, cast your mind back when we were talking about who were the Manchus. What are the constitutive elements of the, of, of the Qing Dynasty major institutions? Uh, the bannermen. This is what northern hybrid states, this is the sort of thing that they use to replace the enormous number of eunuchs that southern agricultural Han states tend to rely on. All these dynasties in the last thousand years of Chinese history have their graduates of the civil service examination system, but the emperor doesn't want to rely 100% on them. He doesn't necessarily trust them. They have different uh, 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 bases of power. They earned their position through excruciating decades of study. They come from wealthy families usually. He wants to offset, he wants to balance their power with what we refer to as dependent intermediaries. And the Chinese emperors in southern agricultural states made use of eunuchs. Ming Dynasty had perhaps 20,000 eunuchs in service. Northern hybrid states bring in outsiders who serve as a form of eunuch. And oftentimes these outsiders are in hereditary military castes. The Mongols did it and the Manchus did it. Okay, and early on when the Manchus were allying with the eastern Mongol tribes and then they conquered parts of northeastern China, namely the Liaodong area, they also then conquered their first major agrarian populations of Han. Okay, of Han. And the, many of these Han then decided to join the conquest and conquer southern China with the Manchus and the Mongols. And many of these so-called Han bannermen who get enrolled in the Qing banners, this hereditary military system, in which you're going to be privileged, have better access to uh, government jobs, government posts, far out of proportion to your numbers, Okay, um, these Han bannermen, sometimes they would even adopt different types of names that were more similar to the Manchu or Mongol style of names. Okay, so like Bin Chun, for instance, uh, for instance, he is a 62-year-old uh, Han bannerman who makes this trip to England. I think uh, Jirgang is a Manchu bannerman. All right, not only uh, uh, is the fact that they are related to the early conquest elite of the Qing dynasty relevant, it also means that as bannermen, they have a special relationship with the emperor. Okay, technically all bannermen are slaves. Privileged slaves, but slaves nonetheless, 
whose every aspect of their life, including marriage, has to be approved by the emperor. Okay, so these are trusted servants of the Qing dynasty. It's not just anyone who's being sent over to Europe. These are elite members who have connections to the Qing imperial household. Okay, uh, very important people. All right, now, there were other envoys and travelers as well, and a few other missions, but I don't want to overwhelm you with names and dates and stuff, so I'm going to keep it simple. Talk about Bin Chun and Jurgang in basically the 1860s and early 1870s, um, and use them as a prism, as a window, to uh, talk about the major themes that you know, all of these expeditions to the, to the West uh, tended to comment upon. And I'll weave in comments from other missions that weren't Bin Chun and Jurgang um, and make it sound like it's sort of something that they were talking about because I don't want to inundate you with all these names. All right, now, our chronological bookends. Where do we begin and where do we end? We pick up right where the last episode ended. We begin in 1861 with the creation of the Zhongli Yamen. All right, right after the trauma of the burning of the Summer Palace, the assault on Beijing by British and French forces, we now have the creation of a diplomatic body that is meant to deal with the European nations, just the European nations, on their terms of, dip of ostensible diplomatic equality, not the hierarchical tribute system. All right, they won that right in war. Okay, we'll do that. So what you're seeing is you're seeing, you know, a Qing, a Chinese um, growing recognition that we're going to need to alter the way we do things to accommodate the Westerners, but still no sense of an existential crisis. The, you know, sort of the, the general mood of Qing elites, Qing diplomats after the 1861 after the defeat in the Second Opium War, is wow, but wow with a caveat. Wow, these guys are strong. We have to take notice of them and start to learn about them, but we're still not convinced that we have to change our entire civilization and society and government. Okay, we're gonna, we're gonna pick and choose. We're gonna pick and choose. All right, let's find out what the secrets of this, you know, surprising military successes from these Westerners, okay? And so they adopted the attitude of what is known in Chinese history as the paradigm of T versus Yong. Utility versus essence. T, essence. Yong, utility or use, something that's practical. And they would say that T, the essence, that refers to Chinese civilization. That refers to Huaxia civilization. And that's sound. There's no problem with that. There's no crisis there. We're doing fine. The basis of our civilization, of our empire, of our everything is sound. What the Westerners seem to have is they've mastered the art of inventing new forms of yong, utility. Right? They have clever little inventions that they've managed to utilize to great effect. And now we want to quarantine. We, we, we want to put Chinese tea, essence, in a bubble and just pick and choose selectively of young, whatever's useful from the West, without becoming like them. Okay? So this begins, this new mindset begins with the creation of the Zhongli Yamen in 1861, and it's going to last for a little over 30 years, three decades, until finally you get a major shockwave in 1895 uh, when the Qing Dynasty is defeated by the Japanese in the Sino-Japanese War. A conflict takes place over Korea. That'll be the next episode in which we talk about that. But right here, our chronological bookend is roughly 1861 to 1895. What was the prevailing ethos and outlook among Qing dynasty policymakers towards uh, the impact of the West? The impact of the West. And again, I cannot emphasize enough that their view at the time made rational sense to them. There still wasn't a sense. There was always, a, you know, every couple of decades, the sense of um, a threat keeps growing but not the sense of an existential threat. All right, enough of all this. Let's move on to our first Qing envoy mission to the West. Bin Chun, 1866, the 62-year-old Han Bannerman. Okay, he didn't even pay for his own trip. He went because a European delegation that was returning from China was going back to Europe, and they offered to pay for him to go along. Okay, that already is your first sign that the Qing, even though they want to learn about the West with first-hand knowledge and they want to send important people who are, have close ties to the imperial court to do it, there's still no overarching urge. They don't even pay for the first trip. 
Bean Chun only goes because the Europeans are paying for it. All right. Nevertheless, when Bing Chun gets to Europe, what does he comment upon? Well, we're going to do three things we're going to talk about with Bing Chun's trip. Uh, technology, or science, gender, and race. Okay, let's begin with technology. Remember, you're supposed to categorize this in the area of Yong. It's just utility. Okay, Bing Chun travels throughout Europe, and he sees things for the first time, like trains, and new hydraulic systems to drain fields that are, you know, to him, seem vastly superior than the more, what now seem like, primitive technologies in China, in rice agriculture. In England, he sees trains, and he describes them in Chinese as movable houses that exceed the power of 1,000 oxen. And then he puts it into a Chinese literary context, something you should get used to, in which they're trying to interpret totally very unfamiliar things. They've never seen these before. How do you make sense of the unfamiliar? You interpret it in a familiar uh, terms, okay? And he says, it is as if traveling on a train, as if I were the Taoist sage Lietze, gliding thousands of miles along the wind. If King Mu had known this method, he surely would have covered the whole world with his wheels. Or he's certainly impressed, right? He's certainly impressed. It's not like he's trying to begrudge the European invention of the train and say, ah, it's not nothing. He recognizes this is pretty significant. We're probably going to want to learn from this. Okay. Then he goes to the, to the Netherlands, and he sees new hydraulic innovations. Hydraulics, the, 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 the unnatural, artificial movement of water by human beings to do things that water wouldn't normally do naturally on its own. And he sees low-lying, vulnerable floodlands being made to have a very productive agricultural use through uh, Dutch hydraulic inventions. And he compares them to agriculture in Jiangxi, and he says, these seem pretty... Uh, impressive what the Dutch have managed to do. He composes an entire poem on Dutch hydraulics. Says that, quote, the Dutch have managed to reverse the nature of water, whereas Chinese peasants, he says, merely yield to the nature of water. Okay? So we got to learn what the Westerners have been able to come up with here to create things like trains and manipulate water to large-scale economic effect. And so he says, these Western inventions, they're new methods. In Chinese, fa, they're new methods. Okay, they're not the result of a distinct body of scientific knowledge that then gets applied for the purpose of creating new inventions that might benefit from society, benefit to society. And for many other inventions he sees, he, he, he applies, he creates a translation of the terms of what he sees, and he adds the word fa, method, onto the end. When he sees steam engines, he translates these as holun fa, the method of the firewheels. When he sees a telegraph, he calls it the dianji jixin fa, the method of using electric machines to send letters. When he sees new hydraulic innovations, he says it's shui fa, the method of water. When he sees photography, the use of cameras, this is brand new to him as well. He calls it jiao xiang fa, the method of illuminating a scene or a face, a visage. That's photography. What, what, what Bing Chun is doing is he's fixing the principles of scientific operation in the devices themselves, not in a distinct body of knowledge created by the scientific trial and error method that enabled their invention. As a result, according to Bing Chun, Western science is cleverness. Nothing more. Cleverness. All right? He's acknowledging that it's clever. It's useful. And heck, we want to learn this. But it's not the outgrowth of a distinct civilizational evolutionary developmental model that we need to hurry up and catch up to and we're somehow flawed that we don't have it. No, 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 no. They have these clever little inventions that they've somehow come upon, and we're just going to learn them. And that'll be it. And put them into a Chinese context. He also sees a lot of things that surprise him in the area of gender. I love this one. Okay. Uh, the area of gender. When he goes to Europe, Bing Chun sees what to him appears to be an inversion of the natural gender hierarchy that has existed for thousands of years in Confucian East Asia. 
He goes into private homes, wealthy homes, you know, the diplomats and the nobility who are hosting him uh, in, in Europe. Uh, he goes into uh, uh, imperial courts, to European museums, and he sees nude art, naked women, sometimes naked men. You, 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 you've all seen Greek and Roman statuary, right? <laughs> they're as naked as the day they're born. And he says, quote, upon seeing these, Painted beauties, no matter whether they are in colors or in ink, are all stark naked with only their private parts covered. Such paintings are displayed in halls and studies, and no one seems to be bothered by them. This is shocking to him. There are representations of naked women. Now, if you've been paying attention over the course of this podcast, that's one thing that you should immediately be able to identify would be beyond shocking, almost abhorrent to an educated Confucian gentleman. Women are to be, to the extent possible, sequestered and not seen. Not even by, you know, by, by any other man, other than a close male relative or a husband or a father. Much less paint a picture of her naked and put it in a place where people will see it, either in public or in someone's house in the hallway. My God. Okay, you can't believe what he's seen. Then he sees not just sort of statues and paintings, but women in the flesh and blood. And he says, you know what? There seem to be a lot of women in, uh, visible in the public sphere. He goes to diplomatic functions and women are there. Men bring their wives. Now, the, now we know, looking back on this, that most of these women, unless it's Queen Victoria, don't have much real power. Okay? Uh, it's mostly a facade. It's not like they have real political power. And they're still in a minority. When it gets down to the people who are in a room making the really important decision, it's a man's world. But from Bean Shun's perspective, he's going to all these receptions and galas and dances and you know audiences and whatnot, um, and he's seeing women being publicly exhibited. And he says, well, "This is strange." And he actually then mistakes it as thinking that women have some real power over men, because he's thinking of it in Confucian terms. Whereas if women were in the public sphere, like Empress Wu of the Tang Dynasty, or Empress Cixi, who, by the way, is just beginning to amass some power uh, in the Qing Dynasty at this time, 1860s, okay, um, that really would mean they have real power over men. <laughs> women who are visible in the public sphere, they have power. And so he seems to think that that's the case in Europe as well. And he says, quote, when they invite a guest... If the guest has a wife and daughter, the wife and daughter are invited as well. According to their custom, women are present at all court assemblies and state banquets, for they claim that yin is the same entity as yang and must not be neglected. He's referring to the yin-yang binary theory. Okay, of sort of masculine, bright powers, the yang, um, and then yin, dark, passive, female. And they're supposed to be kept in proper balance. And he goes on to say, it is so strange that those slender, flower-like women with bare arms and exposed bosoms are the honored guests. Instead of crouching like a hen, they fly like a rooster. The women, they act like men. As a result, Bin Chun thought European women held a superior position in some context to men. He said, quote, men constantly obey. Western husbands serve their wives like a maid or concubine on a daily basis. European men were thus seen as lacking Chinese notions of masculinity. Scottish kilts didn't help these perceptions either. <laughs> he says, quote, upon seeing Scottish nobles dressed in kilts when he's in Britain, quote, exposing their knees is no manner for a subject. Why not simply enter the royal palace stark naked? Right, these things are shocking to someone who comes from this sort of background. These are the sort of things, by the way, that I think would make a wonderful movie. A wonderful movie. Hollywood needs to, to read this book by Jenny Huang Fu Day um, and needs to sort of think, you know what? This is precisely the sort of hijinks and cultural misunderstanding that would make for a great drama piece. The first Qing envoys to the West and their observations on gender and all these things. Wonderful misunderstandings. You can make a hilarious sitcom out of this. Now, because Bing Chun had to conform to European etiquette, 
he was required to shake hands with women. And touching a stranger woman, not your daughter, your wife, or your sister, that's a big no-no. That's one of the the biggest no-nos in Confucian culture. And because he's required to keep a diary and journal and report back on everything he did, and because he's not the only person, he also has you know, his own you know, posse of secretaries and whatnot who are with him, they see what's going on too. He doesn't hide this fact. He has to report it back home, and he's worried about the backlash back home in China. So he justifies it in terms of adhering to ritual. He said, quote, Only after a handshake could one be said to have fulfilled the ritual. I am afraid you might blame me for my careless conduct, but it wasn't that I loved their soft hands. (laughs) It is a sign of respect that must be done. And of course, he didn't didn't take a moment's pleasure in the soft, silky smooth hands of flower-like women with their bosoms exposed, according to his own writings. Not a moment's pleasure! If we believe him, he was an excruciating psychological torment the whole time. And he only did it because that's how I fulfill their ritual. And, you know, Confucians are big on ritual. you got to fulfill the rituals to keep the world right. So I can't insult them by not, uh, you know, agreeing to engage their rituals. The irony of all this, of course, is that many Europeans thought that the envoys themselves resembled women. Think back. What is a, 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 an elite man dressed like during the Qing Dynasty? Or, heck, pretty much during any period of Chinese history prior to the 20th century. The standard dress for a man was a robe, essentially, i.e. in the European context, a dress, perhaps, a robe. And then they had the queue, remember, the hairstyle. The Manchus imposed the queue hairstyle on all of their subjects. That means the front of your head is shaved bald, and then towards the back you have hair, and then it's braided downward into a long queue pigtail that stretches all the way to, you know, to your tailbone, the bottom of your back. Okay, so you think about it from the European perspective. Bing Jun himself actually sort of resembles, he checks off the superficial boxes of the aesthetics of what a woman looks like in their culture. And he said the following, I have a wonderful, awkward moment. Again, this is wonderful scenes for Hollywood. Quote, when we were coming out from the door, there were seven or eight ignorant men and women, Bin Chun wrote. They asked, where do these people come from? Someone said, they are Chinese. They again asked, the one with the beard is certainly a male. But the beardless ones, are they women? Our host said with a smile, they are all men. Those who heard all laughed. On our way back, there were two or three children who, upon seeing us, shouted out loudly, Come quickly! Come and see the Chinese women! (laughs) Isn't this wonderful? You can just envision the scene, what's going on here in the 1860s, somewhere in Europe. I think this may have been taking place uh, somewhere in England. Another envoy wrote at a different time, quote, I have the honor of being a male. Like he earned it, right? I have the honor of being a male, but I'm now suffering the fate of being confused with a female. It is bewildering indeed. Instead of flying about like a rooster, I am crouching like a hen. They were very fond of that analogy with roosters and hens, and they did not like to be compared to a hen. They wanted to be the rooster. Okay, now, science, gender, let's talk about race. Race. Three major influential factors we got to think about with race. First, the backdrop of Western uh, uh, colonialism, and heck, Qing colonialism as well. The Qing was an empire. It conquered regions outside of the core area from where the conquerors came from, and they ruled these places as culturally and ethnically alien lands where things were different and could not be ruled according to the norms of other parts of their empire. Those are colonies, okay? And of course, the Europeans had colonies as well, ever more of them as the 19th century goes on. So you have the backdrop of not only Western colonialism, but Qing colonialism, you have the introduction of new Western social Darwinist theories about the, uh, you know, taking Darwinism and applying it to the idea of race and evolution um, and saying that whoever, whatever race that we imagine is ruling the world today uh, earned it through natural selection, through competition, the survival of the fittest. Um, and therefore, uh, white people must be the most evolutionarily superior. This is a very dark undertones in the 20th century when you take it even further and you start saying that if we're superior and other races are inferior then we can you know eliminate inferior races that would be doing the world a favor right um and then you also have chinese ideas 
about class and skin color. Remember, there were Chinese ideas about skin color. All right, we had that episode where we talked about ethnicity. Um, you know, the Chinese often had a negative association with dark skin for various reasons. Uh, but dark skin, uh, first and foremost, was often associated with lower class people who work out in the sun. Remember in the Shang Dynasty, one of the earliest Chinese characters that we have on Oracle Bones, uh, the character for a group of people was, uh, it was a pictograph of a sun with three people under the sun working in the field. Okay. Um, all right. So we have Chinese ideas of those who are out in the field being inferior people, both in terms of class and kind of in terms of, you know, I don't want to say ethnicity, but definitely skin color. And they didn't have good impressions of Arabs who came from the south during the Tang Dynasty and brought African slaves with them on their ships as well. Uh, these things all reinforced ideas about dark skin equals barbarity. Okay, so what's interesting here is that as these envoys are going to Europe, uh, there's no planes in those days. They're not flying over, over Eurasia. Uh, they're taking boats, and the boats aren't going straight from Beijing, next stop London, or Manchester, or whatever it would be. Uh, they're making multiple stops en route, which means that they're making stops in ports of European colonies, and they are seeing European rule over other darker-skinned peoples, and they comment upon this. This is fascinating. In Vietnam, Bin Chun says that half of their residents only use a single sheet of cloth to cover their bodies. <laughs> they're naked like those women in the European paintings. Men have long hair here and mostly do not have beards. Long hair, obviously not braided. If it was braided, it would be seen as long hair that is managed, that is controlled. Unbraided long hair is seen as a wild man. Uh, it says, women walk barefoot and do not wear pins or earrings. I cannot tell their gender. And that's a big no-no. Okay, the Confucian hierarchy and gender norms. You're always supposed to be able to immediately tell what someone's gender is. You don't confuse male and female. In Singapore... He says, the natives are uglier than its birds. Quote, the island is particularly rich in precious birds of all colors. People from our boat bought as many as hundreds of them. They are extremely pleasing to the eye. It is just that the uncivilized, primitive natives of the island, with their dark skin and red teeth, are quite a frightful sight. If the Tang poet Liu Zhao had come here, he certainly would have said, Ah, how strange it is that the numinous energy of the maker of things should be invested in birds rather than humans. They say, wow, the birds here are so beautiful. How come the humans can't match the birds' beauty? All right? It's a very dim view of the native, the indigenous peoples of Singapore. And then on the ship itself, the European ship, who do you think is slaving away? Down in that hot, dangerous, sweaty engine room down below, where if you hit an iceberg, everyone down there is going to be the first people to die. Many African laborers, African slaves sometimes too. And he sees them down there, and he describes them as the children of nature, loyal but dumb brutes. Kind of like how they describe the Indian sepoys, the Indian soldiers who fought for the British in the Opium War. Dark, dumb brutes for the fact that they would work for someone else and they can't liberate themselves. And yet they're somehow loyal. Why are they loyal? They must not be too bright to be able to create their own independent country. And he says, quote, after going into the engine room and seeing the people who are working there, the muscles of the black people are as dark as ink. They twitter and hop around, having fun in the fiery wilderness. Oh yeah, it's real fun down there. Alas, they don't mind walking into boiling water or burning fire. Their form may be ugly, but their hearts are admirable. Sort of these, these children, these beasts, these simple beasts of nature. Like a dog. Very loyal. Okay, do what you want them to do. But ultimately, they do these things because they're dumb. They're inferior to you. They're, they're bestial, and they're described as bestial, twittering and hopping around in the engine room, right? Okay, now, the cumulative portrait that you get in Bin Chun's writings about Westerners and colonialism is that Western colonialism civilizes barbarian peoples of the world just like China civilizes the barbarian peoples of its world. In other words, we both rule over other inferior peoples, and by our enlightened, benevolent rule, we improve those people and improve the world. Okay, They're bonding over their shared status as rulers rather than ruled. 
Okay, the Qing envoys, again, are not seeing themselves as inferior. Europeans have some clever things. They've got a nice little civilization of their own, but it's not an existential threat to the way we do things. Okay, we're both rulers over inferior peoples, and our rule is a good thing. Thus, he was confused when he went to the Kensington Museum in England, and he saw an exhibit, a historical exhibit, that divided the world into color types, skin types, racial skin types. You know that hierarchy. You've probably heard it before. White, yellow, red, black, brown. Okay. And he sees that the Asians have been described as yellow people. Yellow? Okay, well, it's close to white. He can sort of stomach yellow. as you know, They didn't call us black, brown, or red, so that's good. Uh, but then he saw that the explicit hierarchy. White was above yellow. It's great that yellow's second, but hey... In Bean Chun's eyes, yellow and white are the same. We are the same, man. We're not inferior to you. And that's if you need an example of what I'm talking about, this is the best example. We're not inferior to you. There's no existential threat yet. We're also basically white. Incidentally, much later on, when we talk about the Japanese empire, the Japanese are going to do the exact same thing. They're going to think of themselves as honorary white people. And they're going to talk about the Japanese race as the, you know, having the white race of East Asia, or of all of Asia, okay? That idea that the Europeans will create of a racial social Darwinist hierarchy will be internalized by other peoples around the world as well, especially those who aspire to replace the white people at the top of that Western-made para- ideological paradigm. So, Bin Jun's conclusion, the Westerners are a type of civilized, superior people like us, but they're still different in the details, and they have some perversity on key matters such as gender. Okay? Why are they, these little differences? You know, there actually are some shortcomings in Western society. It's not all great. Yeah, hydraulics is great. Trains are great. Telegraphs, f- photography, this is all great. But they got it all wrong on gender. <laughs> okay? And as we're going to see, they got it wrong on religion, too. We're going to talk about that in a moment. So why? Why, why are these 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 kind of significant differences between Chinese and Western civilization. Now, the next mission is going to try to answer that question. The mission of Zhurgang, which departs in 1868 and lasts three years until 1871. Zhurgang is trying to understand, again, the nature and uh, utility of Western technology, Yong, not change our T, the essence, and he wants to justify the adoption of some of this Western technology in terms that will make it look like this stuff was not invented entirely independent of Chinese civilization. He still wants to give credit to Chinese civilization. Okay, we're going to call this the Western Origins in China Theory. In Chinese, Xi Xue Zhongyuan. Western learning, Chinese origins. Xi Xue Zhongyuan. All right. The Qing Dynasty recognizes we need to adopt some of these clever little inventions of the Westerners, but... In order so that we don't feel like we are inferior to them, we're still going to adopt the belief. And they probably, it's not like this is, you know, fake. This is insincere. They truly probably believe this, okay? They're going to understand it in terms of we actually are responsible for what they invented. It's just an accident of history that they invented it. But really, it has origins in our Huaxia civilization. So the Western origins in China theory is all about how the principles of Western science can be found in Chinese wisdom. Ancient Chinese wisdom. There's no sense that the West might be the seat of its own independent learning. Anything civilized originally came from China, and they are an offshoot of Chinese civilization. Let me give you a few examples of the rationalization that the Western origins in, in China theory involved. One, Zhurgang, it would said that the ancient Taoists had methods for extracting mercury, just like modern Western chemistry. Yeah, they're doing some things with chemicals, but we have a long tradition in Taoism of alchemy and mixing chemicals and all this sort of stuff. Two, the Taoist sage Zhuangzi anticipated flush toilets when he said things like, quote, the way can be found even in matters of human waste. They're really stretching here, but they like to do textual analogies. Go through all of their, you know, Confucian classic texts and try to find things. If you can just find any sentence that seems to comment upon a topic in which the Westerners have created some new invention, then you can say, well, we anticipated it. We were talking about this a long time ago, and they just sort of happened upon a new uh, uh, development. 
in the stage of something that we've already been talking about for thousands of years. It says that Prussia, new Prussian methods of government, which makes which seems to make it a rising power and something to be, you know, uh, its army to be feared. It says they just stole the legalist ideas from ancient China, going all the way back to Guanzi in the 7th century and Han Feitze later on. He said, then this Christian belief about sacrificing oneself to save the world, Mozart, ancient philosopher Mozart talked about that. He anticipated this belief, remember? Universal love, impartial caring, treating everyone like yourself, rejecting the family unit as the basis for society. All right, that was the alternative to filial piety. Cast your mind way back to one of the first episodes of this podcast. And he says, they, the, the Christians, this idea comes from Mozart. The Christians just kind of took it in a different direction, and the details are different. One of my favorite examples of this rationalization came when Jurgong was trying to interpret uh, new developments in Western astronomy. All right, the analysis and scientific study of the heavenly bodies. You know, we, we look back now and we say these are big, massive breakthroughs. And at the time, Jurgong said that, uh, you know, this, this actually is not as different as we think. Okay, now Western astronomy was beginning to have a new radical view of how the heavens worked. They said that there are fixed heavenly bodies that operate independent of the human world. Now, why is this a radically new conception of what is out there in space beyond our world? Well, what was, what was the Chinese view of the cosmos? Heaven responds to human actions with morally charged, purposeful portents in cosmic embodiments as their commentary on human action. Whether, you know, for example, whether an emperor has virtue or not, or a dynasty is about to be overthrown or not, heaven will comment upon it. It will give you indications of whether or not this is a good policy, that you made a good decision. Okay? When the Yongle Emperor decided to move the capital from Nanjing in the south, which his father set up, the founder of the Ming Dynasty, in 1368, when Yongle, 40 years later, says, let's build a new palace, the Forbidden City, north in Beijing, so I can keep a better eye on the Mongols and be closer to my power base, 100 days after the completion of the Hall of Supreme Harmony, the, the, you know, the ceremonial centerpiece of the Forbidden City, it was struck by lightning. There was an electrical storm and it was struck by lightning. And some of his bolder advisors said, this is heaven's commentary, heaven's punishment. They're warning you for the hubris of relocating your father's capital and building this lavish imperial city, right? Things that happen in the sky or in the night space are commentary, moral commentary on what humans do in the political realm. All right. It's very human centered. And the Europeans are now starting to say, no, it has nothing to do with humans whatsoever. We're not at the center of the universe. These heavenly cosmic bodies do their own things on their own, totally regardless of what humans do. Well, this is a big challenge to the entire ideological edifice of Huaxia civilization and morality. So Jurgang has to reconcile these traditions. He can't admit that the Europeans have, you know, have disproven the, the entire basis of Chinese civilization. So he says that cosmic portents still do occur, but they occur for more scientific reasons that still reflect more, uh, moral commentary on human action. For instance, the grievances of the people when they have a bad ruler or, you know, they're being exploited by the emperor. The grievances of the people will produce a noxious air that changes our human perception of the heavenly bodies, thus producing human-inflected moral portents from a scientifically rational heaven. Now, if you didn't understand what I just said, that's fine. It's a tortured explanation. It's a tor tortured attempt to try to say there are scientific principles involved, but it's heaven still engages in moral commentary on human action, human political action, by the things that it shows us, the weather we receive, lightning, the appearance of dragons in the sky, the movement of stars, all these things. All right, but now we just say there's a scientific explanation for why heaven does certain things with its heavenly bodies that could be influenced by an invisible gas that the masses produce. <laughs> there's an obvious joke here waiting to be told, but I'm not going to tell it. Uh, there's an obvious noxious gas produced by the peasants in mass when they're being exploited. And that explains what the Europeans call the scientific explanation 
for why the heavenly bodies are doing what they do. Still a moral commentary. So, what you're getting here is you're getting Jurgang reflecting an increasing realization that China must westernize in more areas, incorporate western explanations of the world into their own explanations, but still reluctant to admit inferiority. Proud civilizations that are 3,000 years old don't die easily. <laughs> okay, they don't go down without a fight. Thus they conclude, Jurgang, Binchung conclude, we are actually the same people in antiquity, but we diverged somehow. Why and how? Well, the answer to this question came through an, their analysis of Western religion. Christianity. They saw this. And they said, you know what? We see all these highly educated Western elites. They practice this thing that they call Christianity. And Christianity, to the Confucian gentlemen, was what they associated the, the, the rituals involved, the prayer eating the bread that is imagined to be Jesus Christ's body. They said, this is the ignorant peasant vice shit that our people do back in the countryside, and we call them ignorant, uneducated people. The Confucian gentleman prided himself on being rational. See the irony here. The irony is that they don't accept the rational scientific interpretation of the heavenly bodies. And then in religion, they take the, the rational moral high ground and they say, we're the rational ones and you guys are the superstitious ones. Okay? Our peasants do this sort of, you know, rattling of voodoo sticks and, you know, eating certain types of food and hiring Taoist uh, priests to go to the netherworld and bring back benefits from the various gods. All right, all that hocus pocus and crap, that's what un uneducated, ignorant, barbarian peasants do. Why are educated European gentlemen doing things that we associate with uncivilized peasants? And he says, they must practice this ignorant peasant vice due to genealogical bookkeeping errors. In debating the utility of prayer with a Christian priest, Jurgang claimed that prayer should only be for uncivilized people, such as the, quote, red men in America, or the, quote, black men in Africa, or his own Chinese peasants. These people need to pray to be turned from their barbarous and murderous ways, and to take comfort in the idea that demons and gods are actually influencing their, their, their daily lives, that they're living in their oven and influencing things in their household. But he says, China and the West are civilized. Quote, you and I belong to people who have long known ritual and righteousness. We only pray when we have committed evil wrongdoing. The practice of praying to God for blessing should only be applied to those stupid, ignorant, and uncivilized people living in the great wilderness or beyond the ocean shores, such as the American Red Indians and the Australian or Malaccan Aborigines, whose strong ones bully and devour the weak and who do not know remorse and fear. Jurgan's conclusion, your belief in a heavenly father defies patriarchal Confucian logic. And thus it must be the result of negligent genealogical bookkeeping errors. In other words, Westerners forgot the family name of their first and earliest ancestors. So they had to make up a story about a heavenly father to substitute as their surrogate father, their surrogate father ancestor that they've forgotten about, and call themselves his sons. This, he said, explains the social inversion that we see in this weird thing called Western democracy. Would you give the people a vote? Are you kidding me? Since their father is in heaven, and he is everyone's father, humans in the Western conception must all be peers. They're all equal. Because they recognize the ultimate father of all of them as being in heaven. So they're all his equal children. So rulers and subjects are unfortunately on the same plane. That's why they also mix up the sexes too. They're, they're perverse gender norms. See, for Jurgang, immersed in the Confucian classics, he's probably thinking to himself, they've never had the benefit of Xunzi's discourse on the necessity of inequality. <laughs> if they had, then they would know that inequality is a good thing. This ridiculous discourse about us all being equal under God's eyes, God's children, and he's our heavenly father. No, 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 no. You have a father, and he's not way up there influencing the daily details of your life. Okay, there is a heaven. There is a heaven. It's not personified as a, a, a person or a bodily or, you know, force of any sort. But only the emperor answers to heaven. 
Okay. And it's not someone who, who intervenes all the time in, in, in his daily life. You commune with heaven to make sure you have a good harvest, these sorts of things. The, the, the geomantic forces of the world are properly aligned. Not for your daily fortunes. Okay? Or before you go to war, praying to a god and this sort of thing. You guys need to listen to Shunzu more. You need to learn that inequality is a good thing. Don't aspire to equality. That's crazy talk. So Jurgan's conclusion, as I've said a million times this episode, no existential threat in all larger matters, really big matters perhaps, except for gender, we're essentially the same. They're just on a different developmental path from our original civilizational blueprint, which it's obvious they share with us. And at some point, they forgot their original ancestors, which we didn't. And so many other differences, as religion, gender, these sorts of things, weird democracy, those are minor genealogical bookkeeping errors. Well, maybe not so minor. There can be some big bookkeeping errors, but nonetheless, errors regardless. Okay? So that's Binchun and Jurgang's missions. 1860s, 1870s, more envoys from the Qing will go. All right? All the way up until the early 1890s. In 1890 to 1893, you have another man by the name of Shui Fu Cheng. will also be another person who will give uh, first-hand eyewitness impressions of Western civilization and say, here's what it's like. But even as late as the early 1890s, just a year, 1893, that's just a year before the Sino-Japanese War. Shui Fu Cheng is still wholly subscribing to Jurgang's theory of the Western origins in China. All right, he's still completely saying, yeah, uh, nothing independent of us. Whatever they've done that's clever, uh, we, we had a hand in. And therefore, we're not falling apart. We're just a little few tweaks here and there, and we almost got it. We almost got it. It's going to take the shock of 1895 and being defeated roundly by another Asian power that you have long regarded as insignificant, inferior, and heck, even barbarian, to finally jolt the Qing dynasty into the painful, lurching, long, belated path, way too belated path of comprehensive reform. So next time, we will examine the role of Japan in creating that shock, and then how for the next 50 years, they stifled any Chinese attempt to move beyond that shock in our next episode. Japan versus China, in episode 29 of Beyond Huaxia. Xiao.